2002, and it was a Sunday, a little bit warmer than this, but I was um, leaving church with my friend Adam Sharkey. Adam, if you were to meet him, and if he were to watch this, I'm sorry, Adam, I'm just being honest, um, is... uh, just as much of a jerk as I am. He can be kind of mean sometimes, but he's a lot of fun. And we were driving down Kansas Expressway in Springfield, Missouri, and there were some girls also from our church who were riding up beside us as we were driving. I was driving my early 90s brown Ford Taurus. It was an awesome car. Zero to 60 someday right? And I'm driving it and these girls come up beside me and they are kind of waving and flirting. And as they're doing that, I I think they were flirting. I mean, obviously they were flirting. (laughs) And uh, so they're like waving and flirting and we are like smiling and waving at them and completely making fun of them the whole time like while I'm driving. And then um, the car ahead of the car in front of me decided to turn And apparently you have to go from like 50 to zero to turn. And so he stopped. The guy in front of me kind of swerved out of the way very quickly. And so then here here I'm coming to this car, kind of distracted, but then seeing it. And to not hit the car, I swerved and hit a light pole. And the light pole fell over. And now I own a light pole in Springfield, Missouri, right? And my car was broken, not fixable, and you don't get a lot of money out of a brown Ford Taurus. And so I am now without a car. The girls that we were making fun of pulled off to the side. Once they saw we were in the accident, they waited and then they took us, they gave us a ride back to, but campus was closed and so I couldn't get to the meal. So they, we went out to eat and then they paid for my meal. And I feel like a jerk because I was making fun of them and swerved and got distracted. And then they paid for my meal. And now you know that your pastor can be mean. Um, that definitely happened. And, and uh, it is not a pretty picture, but they gave us a They paid for a meal. And I've never told that stuff. I don't think I've told that publicly here. I don't know, maybe I have. Um, and now they're both pastor's wives and I feel bad. But anyway... Life can be dangerous, and life can get dangerous when we get distracted. This, who here knows of people that have been in an accident because of distracted driving? Yes. We, some of you ladies are putting on makeup and driving at the same time, and some of us guys are on, come on, Doug, don't you say a word. <laughs> Doug's been in the car with me, and He's lived to tell about it. Amen, right? And so we can get distracted, though. We can go the wrong direction with the wrong disposition, make the wrong decision, and it can destroy us, right? Um, We're in Hebrews chapter number 12, where the preacher's been talking about running a race. If you have your Bible, grab them. Hebrews 12. You guys know where we're going to be because we read it. If it's your first time with us, I'm so excited that you're here. And we, we've been, this is a sermon number 36 in our study through Hebrews. But I try to teach each one so that you can understand it, even if you haven't been there for the first 35 parts, right? But 
just to catch you up to where we are, if you go to the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12, the first word says, what's the first word of chapter 12? Verse one, what is it? Wherefore. Okay, now go down and look at um, verse 12. What's the first word of verse 12? Wherefore. Um, If you go back to... um, Go back to chapter 12, verse 1. He uses this term wherefore. This term wherefore is a word that bridges what's been said before to what he's about to say. Often when it's used in the New Testament, the word's based on this. Because this is true, because of the doctrinal truth that I've given you, because of the truth that you've learned, I want you to then live in light of that truth in a very specific way, right? Uh, Paul does this a lot in Romans chapter 12. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. That word therefore, very similar to wherefore, it's the same thing, by the mercies of God. All the things I said from Romans chapter 1 to Romans into Romans 11, in the light of all of that, I beseech you that you walk, that you, uh, um, Romans 12 and 2, I therefore, I just got another verse in my mind. Uh, therefore, brethren, I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord, which is your reasonable worship. And so he's saying, because God has done all of this for you, now live a certain way. And this is where we're at today. Today's passage is all about how we live in light of all that they've taught us, all that this preacher has taught us in Hebrews. And, and the way that he's um, doing it in Hebrews chapter 12 is by using this metaphor of a race. All of these people that went before, he illustrated their faith life in chapter 11. And he gives us all these illustrations of people who were in the Old Testament that lived a life of faith. And then he says, seeing that we're encompassed about chapter 12 verse 1, with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, the sin that doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. And so he's saying, because faith is the way that you ought to live, faith in Jesus, who is greater. Okay, so to catch everybody up, he's chapters one through all the way to, through chapter 10 has been telling us that in the Old Testament, there was prophets and there were priests and, and, there, and there were kings. And now we have a prophet and a priest and a king in Jesus Christ, who is a better prophet, priest, and king. There were sacrifices of blood, the blood of bulls and goats, right? That's what happened before. Now we have a greater sacrifice, Jesus Christ, who shed his blood for us. We have a better sacrifice. There was a priesthood. The priesthood was people. It was of the tribe of Levi. These were men who had the same kind of uh, temptations, the same kind of sins that we have, but now there's a better priesthood. It's the priest at the order of Melchizedek, Melchizedek, Jesus, our priest king who now ever lives to make intercession for us, not in man's temple and man's tabernacle, but in a greater temple where God is up in heaven. So Jesus is greater. His sacrifice is greater. The covenant, we have a new covenant. There's an old covenant. Now there's a new covenant. And that covenant is, what is it? What is it? It's greater. 
Jesus is greater. The sacrifice, are, do you guys get the picture? And so because all of that is true and we believe all of that by faith, right? And that takes faith to please God. He says, we need to run the life of faith, the life, the, this race of faith in a very specific way. We're, as we move through the book of Hebrews, we saw a series of what we call warning or encouragement passages as we are on the way. There are five of them, and this is the fifth of those five. They're an encouragement for us to move on. The theme of Hebrews is in 6.1 where it says, let us go on to perfection. When the writer of Hebrews wrote, he was writing to Hebrews. Hebrews is another word for Jews, for the Israelites. Now you got to remember that the Jews had lived in this Old Testament time and they had all of those things that I just mentioned. God had established all of the law. He gave them rules and regulations. There was moral law, which he affirms in the New Testament. We're still bound to not kill people. Who's, a, who's for that one? Let's not kill people. Uh, we're, we're still bound to this idea that we ought not to commit adultery or, or to covet or to steal. These are all things that are still there. So the moral law stayed, but the ceremonial law Essentially, the Hebrews was written to Hebrews to tell the Hebrews that they don't have to act like Hebrews. You don't have to do the temple thing anymore. You don't have to do the sacrifice thing anymore. You don't have to do all those ceremonial things because we have something that's better. We have something better. So he, there are some of the people that he's, as he's writing to these people, there are some of the people that he's writing to who have put their faith and trust in Jesus. They know Christ is Savior. They believe that Jesus is who he said he is and they have placed their trust in him. They believe in Christ and so they're, they're, they're growing in maturity, having been regenerate, saved, whatever word you want to use there. There are some that are Hebrews that he's talking to, faith. And so these warning passages are, are passages that say, hey, keep moving forward. Don't go back to your old ways. Don't go back to the sacrificial system. Don't go back to the temple. You don't need that anymore. Keep moving forward as you've seen that Jesus has done something greater, as you see that Jesus is greater. Don't stop. Don't quit. Believe him. Put your faith in him. That's what he's trying to say. Now there's an application for us because although we're not Jewish, many of most of us, we have heard the gospel. If you haven't heard the gospel, let me tell it to you. The gospel is this. The gospel means good news. And it starts with bad news. The Bible says that we're all sinners. That sin is going against God's character, who he is and what he's done. Sin is doing things I ought not to do and not doing things that I ought to do. And all of it, primarily, yes, we sin against each other, but every sin is a sin against a holy God. So all of us sin, and nobody's sin is any better than anybody else's. It's all bad. The wages of sin, what we earn for it, is death, separation from God forever. God is a righteous judge, and he cannot let sin go. So our sin means death. But God loved us so much that even when we were sinners, Christ died for us. Here's the gospel. Jesus Christ, the son of God, died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried 
and he rose again for our sins according to the scriptures. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 tells me is the gospel. And if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, who kept the law perfectly, Jesus never did anything wrong. He never sinned. He never thought something he shouldn't have thought. He never did something he should never have done. And he always did everything that he was supposed to do. I can't, I can't even do that on a Monday. Just for one day, Jesus did it his whole life. And when he died on the cross, God poured out his wrath for your sin on Jesus and became a propitiation, big word, a wrath-bearing sacrifice. God poured out his wrath on Jesus so that he wouldn't have to do it on you. And when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you don't have to get the wrath of God. You can get the mercy and grace of God and have eternity with God forever one day. Now, if you're bored with that, I'm sorry. There's some people in here that may need to hear it. Don't get bored over it. That's the gospel. The writer of Hebrews is writing to people who know it like we know it. And he's saying, don't just know it, believe it, and live in light of it. When you run the race of life, live as if all of this is true because it's true. Live that way. So when you get to Hebrews chapter 12, you'll notice that it says in verse 15, Hebrews 12, 15, this is in the middle of our text, looking diligently lest any man fail at the grace of God. Here it's not saying it's possible for a believer to lose their salvation. When he talks about the failing the grace of God, the word fail really means to come short of or to fail to arrive at that goal. It's the same word used in Romans 3.23 when it says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That is that they fail the glory of God. They miss the mark of the glory of God. As sinners, we all fall short. We fail. We can fail the glory of God. As believers, we can fall short. We can miss the goal of the grace of God. What do I mean? We are saved by grace. And if you're saved, you're always saved. He will hold me fast. He will hold me. You guys get it? I'm, out of, I'm, out, I'm in the wrong key, but you got the point. We can't keep our salvation. He does. But we're saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But we are also to live by grace. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, for by the grace of God, I am what I am. We recognize that we need God's grace on a daily basis. For daily need, we need daily grace. For sudden need, we need sudden grace. For overwhelming need, we need overwhelming grace. Don't come short of God's grace. Too many believers are satisfied to be spiritual pygmies when God has made it possible for us to be spiritual giants in Christ. Be all that you can be. The way that we live also then can cause those around us to fall short of the grace of God. The preacher here is writing to Hebrews, some who are saved and some who are familiar with the teachings of Jesus but not yet trusting in him. He is preaching to these people and telling them to be careful. In verse 15, when he says, look diligently, two words are used which translate from the word where we get the, the English word bishop. It, it's, it's skapos and epi, out of, and skapos is to, to, to see. The word for, there's three words in the New Testament that are used to the same office as pastor, okay? There's a word for pastor. That word pastor has a shepherding 
aspect to it. The pastor is a shepherd, the one who guides and directs and helps to feed. There's also um, the word for elder. And the word elder speaks to a pastor's spiritual maturity. It's the same office, but it speaks to a spiritual maturity. But then there's this word bishop. And bishop means to take the oversight. Bishop means to oversee, to lead. Talks about his administrative role. And what he's saying here is you need to pay attention to the way you live. Back to the illustration. Don't be flirting with things. Drive. Why? Because it's dangerous if you get distracted. I'm putting some of you to sleep. I don't want to put you to sleep. Do you get what I'm saying? Danger if you drive distracted. Danger if you live distracted. He's saying, watch carefully. See to it that you don't miss out on God's grace. He's saying, appropriate God's grace in your daily life. Draw from God's grace everything you need to become the kind of follower God wants you to become. So he's telling them this. We must be careful. Okay, here's my message to us today. Be careful. Be full of care about how you live. Care about how you run the race. He's told us we're in a race. As you run, you got to be careful about how you run. Pay attention to what's going on. And I want to I show you three areas of our lives. And, it, and it's not just paying attention to our lives. It's also paying attention to the lives of those around us. We affect each other. If you're running and you're running by, you, by yourself and you fall, who's there to help you? Nobody. But when you're running with others, who's there to help you? That's a biblical principle. So we need each other. And when he's writing to the Hebrews here, he's not just writing to one individual. He's writing to a whole bunch of people. And he's saying to all of them, hey, we've got to be careful. I need you to have my back. You need me to have your back. Are you with me? We all need that. You guys agree? We need it. So here's three areas that we need to be careful in. Number one, here it is. Are you ready? The direction of our lives. The direction of our lives. Look at verse 12. Here's really the text I want to get into today. Are you ready? 12, 12. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Here he goes back to that running metaphor. And when you run, you use your arms. Okay, I'm going to give you two scenarios. If someone's running like this, obviously, imagine I'm moving my legs. <laughs> if their arms are doing this when they run, and the other person's running like this. Okay, who's gonna get there faster? Who's gonna do better? The one that's using their arms. When do our arms hang down? When you get tired. When you're running, okay, I'm gonna do it. When you're running and you're lifting up your knees, the slower runners, the faster runners get their knees higher, right? The slower runners, barely move their knees at all, right? And so he's saying, hey, lift up your hands that hang down the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, 
lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. He's asking us not to give up or to give in. When he, he says, make straight paths for your feet, he's appealing to making a plan for righteous living. Pay attention to how you're running this race, how you're doing life. Live life intentionally. Now we can think that this is just speaking to individuals, but, but, believe he is, but I believe he's talking about those around us. When I see those around me about to quit, my job is to encourage them. When you see somebody about to, to quit, your job is to encourage them. Hey, don't quit. Keep going. Live right, right? That, that, that's what's there. When he says, lest that which is lame be turned of the way, he's talking about the runner that does not take care of himself through self-discipline. They get injured and they drop out. That's a, bland, a bad plan. Instead of doing that, he says, get healed. The preacher goes on, look at verse 14, and here's where I get this directional idea. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Now, we gotta remember that not all people written to in the book of Hebrews were believers. Some were Jews who were intellectually convinced, like I said, and did not put their, their trust in Christ. Pursuing holiness should mean, to draw, should mean to draw near to God with full faith and accepting Christ as Savior for covering our sin through his sacrifice. What these people need is true faith in Christ to receive a holiness that is not their own, but once received is developed in them through the indwelling spirit. So when he says in verse 14, follow, the word follow here is a direction word. It means to pursue, to go after, or to strive for. He's saying that we should set the direction of our life in two ways, okay? He says, follow peace. You see that? See that in verse 14? Follow peace. And then what else do we follow? Holiness. Follow peace. Who is peace directed towards? Who's it directed towards? All men. And who is holiness directed to? To the Lord, right? There's a manward direction in our life and, it's, and there's a Godward direction in our life. He says, follow or pursue peace with all men. That should be our daily desire. We need to be at peace with people that we live in peace. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the children of God. In Romans 12, it says, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Now notice what it says there, if it be possible. It's not, it, peace happens two ways, right? There's my part of the relationship in pursuing peace, but then there's the other person's part. And sometimes people are crazy. Sometimes people, you can't be at peace with them. Is there anybody like that in your life? These people like love drama. Who, like, who knows someone that loves drama? Don't point to them, okay, <laughs> if they're in the room. There are some people, they, they just like thrive on drama. Like if there's a problem going on, like they're the first to comment, right? Everybody now who's crazy and likes drama has the internet, right? And they, they, they say stuff, right? So sometimes it's not possible. There are, there are, people, in, there are people in my life, it, this, it just blows me away. There are people that don't like me, Right? And, and there are people that are unreasonable and they cannot be reasoned with. Like you do all of the right things 
and they still hate you, right? And, and so, but that's why it says, if it be possible, that's why it says, pursue peace with them. You may not get peace with them, but at least pursue it. Who's with me, okay? Now, sometimes you're the drama, right? And if you're like, there's a lot of drama in my life, but I don't think other people are causing it because it's you, right? So stop the drama. Like live at peace with all men. Not everybody can get along, we can get along with. We need grace. I need grace. You know what's a good thing when there's not peace? Like a good thing to do. If you like did something that's creating a lack of peace, there's two words that if you actually mean them and you go try to say them to somebody that you're not at peace with, it really helps. Ready? I'm sorry. They're closely tied to three more words. I was wrong, right? That's what it takes sometimes to live at peace, right? Another way to live at peace is if you think someone's wronged you, don't tell everybody else about it. Don't post about it. Go talk to the person you got a problem with. Alone. That's free. There's enough strife in the world. Let's live at peace. Now there's a time to stand up and fight, no doubt. But if it be possible, as much as lies in you, live peaceably with all men. Pursue peace. Be a peacemaker. That's the manward direction. He says here, and follow holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. The word holiness means wholeness or completeness. Holiness is to the spiritual life what health is to the physical life. The Bible says God is holy. The Bible says that we're to be holy even as he is holy. So when it says we are to follow holiness, it means in our daily lives, we're to seek to put the direction of our life so that we are more and more like God. We're more and more like Jesus. In Hebrews, that means drawing near to God with full faith and cleansed conscience. That means being saved. And then a a genuine acceptance of Christ as Savior, being saved and then drawing to him. You, you can be born again and then you have a relationship with God and it's both, it takes both. Unbelievers will not be drawn to accept Christ if believers' life do not demonstrate the qualities God desires, which are peace and holiness. If Christians aren't living peaceful lives towards men and holy lives towards God, how are we gonna tell people about Christ? Come see Christ. He hasn't changed me one lick, but I think he'll work for you. Does that work? That does not work. People watch us fight online. It's so stupid. And while we're arguing over dumb stuff, people are going to hell. This means our life, every, everything ought to be holy to the Lord. The places we go ought to be holy to the Lord. The things we see ought to be holy to the Lord. The words that we say ought to be holy to the Lord. So don't miss on God's grace in the direction of your life. How's your direction? Who am I on course for possible unnecessary conflict with? And how can I avoid such conflict? And do I have the holiness of Christ through faith in him and forgiveness from the Father based on salvation, righteousness put into my account? Am I saved? And if I am saved, am I working with God to pursue actual holiness in my living? Who agrees? Those are two great directions for our life, right? And if that's not a part of your life, you need to be 
warned, hey, danger is coming if the character of your life is not peace and not holiness. Do you get it? So as you run, peace and holiness. Let's do that, okay? The second thing we need to look at about our lives, the second area we need to be careful about in our lives is number two, the disposition of our lives. The disposition of our lives. What do I mean? The basic attitude. Disposition is like an attitude or an approach to life. Look at what he says in verse 12. Or sorry, verse 15. Looking diligently. You know what that means? Overseeing. Looking over. Paying attention to. Being careful about something. What do you do? Because if you don't, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any, here it is, root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. I think there's an internal part of what he's saying. So you need to be careful about your own life that you don't get bitter. Are you with me? But you also need to be careful about how you live your life so that others don't get bitter. So if you're not pursuing peace and you're not pursuing holiness, you may act in a way that other people in your community, in your area, in your influence will get bitter at you. Don't do that. That's why, for instance, Paul says to, to fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Are you with me? So you have this disposition. Here he's talking about bitterness. Let me, let me just show you what the Bible says about bitterness, okay? Deuteronomy 29, 18, I believe, is part of where he's actually quoting from here. Lest there, be, there should be among you a root of beareth, that, uh, that beareth gall and wormwood. In Proverbs 14, sin, it says, the heart knoweth his own bitterness. If you have some bitterness in your life, you know it. Just the mention of bitterness in your heart, and already you know what's going on. Um, this is kind of gross, but sometimes gross is memorable, okay? I, 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 I inherited something from my dad. What I inherited from my dad is ingrown toenails. Okay, that's gross. What happens is your nail, if you don't take care of it, it grows into the side of your skin, and as it grows that way, it hurts like crazy, right? And apparently I've passed this along to my children because now we're buying, it's like all the things from the 90s that I remember, like Epsom salt and soaking our feet and all these other things. But you ever have something like that and when you, when your foot touches it and it's, you squeal like, ah, like you ever like, here's another one, less, like less gross. You ever have a sunburn? And whenever you have this, we want to think about sunburns right now because it's so cold, right? Somebody comes up and pats you on the back, what do you do? Right. Sometimes, have you ever seen someone overreact? That may be an indication of bitterness. They're unreasonable in their response. Maybe it's because there's something, have you been over, have you, have you created drama because of that? It may be bitterness. Here's Colossians, sorry, uh, Acts 8, 23. Simon Peter says to a magician, for I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Romans three fourteen says, whose fouth is 
mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Some people have mouths that are full of bitterness and every time they open up their mouth, they just spew poison and bitterness. Colossians 3.10, this is good for us husbands, ready? Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. I remember reading as a newlywed, reading verses like that and going, my wife is so sweet and so innocent and I'm so kind and, and just great and she loves me so much. How would we ever have, but you know what? We live together and we have been since 2006 and I've messed up a lot around my wife. And my wife has messed up a lot around me. Not, I'm not saying because we're really bad people, although sometimes I can be bad. I'm saying that because she's the one I spend the most time with, right? And the longer you go, the more and more can stack up. So he's saying, don't be bad. I'm like, how do you get better against your wife? I've seen it quite a bit. Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil be speaking be put away with, from you with all malice and be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. What is bitterness? Bitterness is anger harbored in the heart and allowed to fester. The writer of Hebrews talks about a root of bitterness. A root, of course, is something that is out of sight. It's in the ground. Bitterness starts on the inside it's a hidden thing that begins. How do people get bitter? They get bitter when they feel that someone has done something or said something wrong to them or to someone they love, or they feel that they've been deprived of something, or, they, or that someone they love has been deprived of something that's rightfully theirs, whether justifiably or unjustifiably, and they allow that to remain in their hearts and fester. That's bitterness. Many people who experience a divorce become very bitter. They feel that they've been wronged, and so they allow that root of bitterness to begin to grow in their heart. Bitterness is a special temptation, I think, for those who grow older. Life seems to be taking away something from people. Sometimes, that's the way they perceive it. Sometimes they lose loved ones. They feel that they've been wrong. There's anger in their heart. Many times it's anger against God, but nobody wants to admit they're angry at God. So they just keep it all in under the surface. Young people who become angry at their parents for injustices done to them grow up and their anger is down in their heart and it smolders. And it's like an unres it's unresolved. It's allowed to fester. In that particular verse, look at it again, Hebrews 12, verse um, 15, it says, any root of bitterness springing up. What does that mean? It's down in there, and then all of a sudden it comes up. Remember what I was saying about hitting, hitting the toe that's tender, hitting the back? All of a sudden, it's, now it's being expressed. And what happens? It says springing up, what does it do? It troubles you. You see that? The root of bitterness springing up trouble you. The one who gets hurt most by bitterness is the person who's bitter. Somebody once said, I, I think there's a lot of truth to it. It's not in the Bible, but it's true. That bitterness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. The word trouble here means to annoy, it means to harass. The medical world has long understood the damaging effect, effects of bitterness. Unresolved bitterness allowed to fester can cause depression you wake up in the middle of the night and the image of that person who you feel has wronged you is there. That anger just smolders and burns and you get depressed. 
In verse 15, it says, and thereby many be defiled. He's saying that it's not only affects the person who's bitter, but they pour their, po- their poison, their venom, and their gall all over other people. Every time they open their mouth, every time they type, their bitterness just comes out. Complaints and criticism. People who are once happy and joyful, if they get that root of bitterness digging down in their souls, they begin to spew. I just feel sorry for people like that. You know, it can destroy a family. It can destroy a church. So what do we do with people like that? We pray for them. We pray. Maybe I'm speaking to someone today who has a disposition of bitterness. You've lost your joy. Can I, can I just give you a cure for it? Are you ready? This is helpful. Ephesians 4.31. Are you ready? Let all bitterness be put away from you, it says. Verse 32, what do you do? You take off bitterness and you put on kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiving one another. Because that person deserves it? No, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. The truth is, we've all wronged people. We've all messed up. And God, for, we, we, we went against God, but God forgave us. And so because God's forgiven us, we ought to forgive others. The cure for bitterness is forgiveness. But you don't know what they've done to me. You're right. But you don't know how they've treated me. You're right. The person that I was married to made my life hell on earth for years. How can I ever forgive them? On your own, you can't. You need Christ. You need his help. If you will come to the cross and get full experience of God's forgiveness in your own life, man, it's a whole lot easier to extend forgiveness to others. Pull up that root of bitterness. Don't let it ruin your life. Okay? So direction. Follow peace with all men, holiness towards God. Disposition. Get rid of bitterness. Forgive. Last one, number three. The decisions of our lives. We pay attention to the direction of our lives, the dispositions of our lives. Let's talk about our decisions. Look at what it says in verse 16. He says, Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For you know that how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. Who is he rejected by? Esau was rejected by God for sure. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was rejected by Isaac, his dad. Though he sought it carefully with tears. Life is a series of choices. You know that, right? Who agrees? You make a lot of choices in life. Here he gives an Old Testament example, and it's an interesting example. He gives an illustration about a person who's made some bad choices in life. Here it's Esau. He says in verse 16, lest there be any fornicator. What's fornicator? Fornicator is someone who sins sexually or a profane person as Esau. So he's talking about here, uh, someone who lives for profane is just the common, the everyday, the, even that which is base. He's saying this is the kind of person that Esau was. Esau in the Old Testament was a twin brother to Jacob. 
Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob and Esau. They were twins. And even though Esau was older, the Bible says Esau would serve the younger. There's this thing that happened in the Old Testament where Esau um, was coming in from hunting. His brother was making a pot of stew. And he says, give me some of that stew. I'm going to die. Now that's dumb because he wasn't going to die. And if he was dying, chili wasn't the answer. Are you with me? I'm dying. I need soup. <laughs> right? So, and, and so what happens? Jacob says, okay, you can give me, I'll give you the food if you give me your birthright. Now, birthright was like tied very much to, a, to the spiritual blessing of the father to the son. It, include, it, was, it was included the inheritance, but it was even bigger than the inheritance. This is like a blessing from the father. It was a birth, this birthright. It was a huge deal. Which is more important, soup or a birthright? Come on, people. Are you awake? Which is, which is more important, the soup or the birthright? Birthright, obviously, right. What does he do? He exchanges his whole inheritance for a bowl of soup. This is the Bible's description of Esau. He's a fornicator. He's immoral. He's profane. He's irreverent. He's a totally secular person. Esau comes in. He says, I got to live by my tongue. I got to live by my belly. It's a guy that's totally living in the temporary and in the flesh. And the word of God describes everything this old world has to offer. And, th and that's exactly what it's like. Think about what people choose over eternity. People choose beer or drugs, to a drug fix over their kids, over their families, over, over heaven. P people choose a one-night stand over heaven. The Bible pictures it all in one statement, and everything the world has to offer you is just a bowl of stew, the birthright he sells. He says even down in verse 17, for you know that afterward, after what? After he, what happens to the bowl of soup? Does he eat it? It's gone. When he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. Gone is the soup, but also gone is the birthright. It seems like a small decision at the time. He just sold his whole birthright for a bowl of stew. But afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing... He was rejected, for he found no place of repentance. Dad, bless me, bless me. Give me the birthright. Give me the inheritance. And Isaac said, I can't. I won't. And he, he cried and cried and cried. And then what happened? I'm going to kill that brother. I'm going to kill that brother to the point at which, man, they, Jacob and Esau don't see each other for years. And they come back and Jacob thinks he's going to actually kill him. It's crazy. You should read the Bible. It's really cool. Here's how it applies to us. That decision you're thinking about making may not seem like it's a really big deal right now, but there are consequences to your decision. 
And what may seem like a small decision now could bring great consequences down the road. The time that came that it dawned on Esau what he had done after his brother steals the blessing from him, he goes into his father Isaac. He begs and cries and tries to reverse it. He now sees what a bad decision has been made. It says he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Young people learn this today. The tears of old age can't reverse the foolish decisions of youth. It said he can't find a place of repentance. He's not talking about personal repentance. The Bible teaches that if you want to repent, you can repent. Esau was trying to get his father to repent, not in the sense of repenting of his sin, but in the sense of changing his mind. The word repentance here means change of mind. Esau realized he had made a really bad decision and the consequences of that decision are now real to him and bigger than he's ever dreamed. And with tears, he pleads with his father, but it's too late. He made a permanent decision over a temporary problem. Don't make a long-term, lifelong, eternal decision over a temporary problem. Sometimes you make that decision when you're bitter. Sometimes you make that decision when you're hurt. Sometimes you make that decision when you're all consumed with the flesh. And that's why the point of this passage is danger. Danger. Make provision for your feet. Be careful about how you live. Oversee your life and think about your direction. Think about your own heart attitude and don't make a decision in a moment that will ruin the rest of your life. Every head bowed and every eye closed.